So it's uh, the day of Dundee Comic Con. It is the 4th of February and to mark the first episode of this new podcast, I'm joined with my frequent collaborator, uh, Professor Chris Murray. So Chris, uh, I just want to ask you today about a recent comic that you've read. And we'll do this as a regular feature going on, um, but we'll also have interviews uh, with guests uh, and other uh, features as we go on uh, through the week. So, Chris, what, what what do you want to talk about today? It's not so much a recent comic, more a comic I've read recently. Uh, there's a, I'm teaching a, a module at the moment about British comics creators. So uh, I was giving some uh, introductory classes and I'm giving the students some, uh, some comics to look at by way of introducing the, this module. And one of the ones uh, I often... Uh, uh, often used for for that that module uh, is uh, a story called New Toys, which which appeared in Weird War Tales. Uh, I think it was issue three, which appeared back in 1997. And New Toys is a story by written by Grant Morrison and drawn by uh, Frank Quitely. So so not a a recent comic at all, but one that I read very recently, just a, just a couple of days ago, uh, and rereading it for this this course and. I got to say that this is a favourite of mine. It's one that I, I return to uh, over and over again, and always find uh, really interesting uh, and also really, really funny. Uh, I guess I should perhaps explain a little bit about what the what the story's about. So, uh, New Toys is a it's quite short comics, just a few pages, few pages long, but it, it opens up with a, with a girl sleeping uh, in her room, surrounded by by toys. And uh, then it cuts into the, the narration of a, of an action man figure, essentially, uh, who's, who's been in what is presented as being combat and warfare, uh, and he, he's injured and is uh, uh, kind of rescued from the, 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 the war zone uh, by, a, by a, a, he's airlifted out of it. But we can see in the, the imagery that it's the young girl who finds him in the garden. Uh, it's it's a bit like Toy Story in the sense that the the toys all have a have a consciousness and 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 talk. So when did this come out? This comes out in ninety seven, and Toy Story uh, uh, is uh, ninety five. Yeah. So it's a couple of years after Toy Story, but the the, the point of the story is that the, the the soldier gets airlifted out and taken back to the girls' room, and he convalesces, uh, and uh, uh, he's he's seen he gets dressed up. Uh, uh, in, in 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 Barbie clothes, and he, he's he's convalescing at a hospital, which is actually the Barbie Funhouse. And at one point, uh, as part of his convalescing, he's uh, sitting at a table with uh, with Barbie, uh, and uh, there's a, a a massive plastic teacup and a big Kit Kat <laughs> there. So so the girls obviously kind of playing house with the with the dolls, and there's a, there's a lovely romantic sex scene between him and the action man figure and, and the Barbie Barbie doll. Uh, and you know it's it's played for laughs. This in the same way that you know the, the, the kind of incongruity between the the battle and the warfare versus the the toys and the girl playing with the the toys. But you know it's it's a it's a Grant Morrison story, so it's going to take a a dark and unexpected turn. Uh, the the toy uh, the action man figure is uh, eventually uh, found by the the other action men figure. And uh, he's put on uh, court-martialed for uh, for desertion, and there's a, a wonderful scene where we see uh, the toy being court-martialed by the by the other uh, action man figures, 
uh, and uh, he's, uh, uh, he's our protagonist is sentenced to a firing squad at dawn and uh, we, we see our, our soldier completely expressionless because the, his expression never changes being a being an action man <laughs> figure uh, accepting this this verdict and then he's, he's stuck in a cardboard box which doubles as a jail cell and he just says shit <laughs> so, and so this this is uh, there's this sense in which uh, it's it's playing around with themes of warfare and uh, and also kind of playing around with this Toy Story conceit of they're all, they're all just toys and it's all all a game. Uh, the the darker turns, the the, the Morrisonian uh, turn kind of comes a little bit later on when when the soldier is about to be executed. Uh, essentially, he's, he's put up in the garden against uh, against some uh, wooden canes in the garden, tied to it, and has a little bag put over his head, and then he's he's shot to death. But as he's uh, trying to explain. To the other soldiers, the insight that he's that he's had, he's talking. He's talking about how all this this warfare, this conflict, uh, is just uh, it's it's just disguising the fact that there's another war, another another invasion going on that the toys are uh, aren't uh, aware of. So he explains this. Uh, he says, uh, "We've been fighting the wrong enemy. You've got to stop them. The new toys." And then he's shot. And then in the last page of the story, it returns to the an image which is very reminiscent of the first page. We, we in, the, in the very first uh, page of the story, we see the girl, the young girl lying in bed, surrounded by her toys. And in the last page uh, of the story, it's a very similar image, but we see her uh, again, an overhead shot, looking down on her bed asleep. But some of the toys have been replaced by what seem to be kind of big insect alien things which uh which seem to be they're either new toys or it's a it's an alien uh, invasion and this is where i think it becomes really interesting because morrison's always known for mashing things up you know when we see things in uh like the filth uh, the, the filth is kind of a version of uh men in black uh, in, in, in some ways but uh, you know this is kind of toy story meets the John Carpenter film They Live from uh, uh, from 1988, which stars Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, and uh, Rady, uh, our protagonist, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, becomes uh, aware of the fact, when he puts on his glasses, that the world around him is one that's already uh, undergone an alien invasion. And he sees subliminal messages, if he were, what we take to be television broadcasts or billboards, actually have subliminal messages that say obey and conform and things like this. And this is essentially what, what New Toys is about. It, it mashes up uh, the central conceit of, of uh, Toy Story uh, along with, uh, along with uh, They Live. Uh, and it's some brilliant artwork by, by Frank, uh, Frank Quay. Yeah, I was going to talk a little bit about the artwork because when, when, it's actually, when he's actually drawing the toys, it's actually quite hard to tell that it's his art mm. because... A lot of uh, Vinny's art is, is about the faces and how he how he draws the faces, but because, as you mentioned earlier, um, the action man character has the same expression in every every panel. Um, the way he's kind of constructed this, I think the framing sequence, start and end, is very Frank Coyley, but the actual toy segment, I think it's kind of hard to pin it down to his his style. And for for me anyway, yeah. 
I mean, I find that, you know, if you just showed me the middle section of that, I would kind of wonder who did that art. Yeah, because I think we've become accustomed to, 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 to Vinny's very distinctive style. Uh, and I think that, that you know, that th those segments, as you see, where, where it's the, the toys that are being drawn, it's, it's a very faithful rendition uh, of the, the Action Man figure. We, we were roughly the same age. We'll remember those, those toys from our youth. It's a very faithful rendition. And what's, what's really funny about it is, you know, that the Action Man figure, the protagonist, it's going through its PTSD, its trauma, its combat, it's all these things. Expression never changes. There's, there's a kind of emotional roller coaster that the character, this toy goes through, but the expression never changes, which is really funny. It really sells the joke. And that is really interesting because the because that you know in, in comics and any kind of acting and, and development, TV and animation, it's all about the facial acting and, yeah. and and the body language but a lot of it's about the face so when you have a character as a black expression how do you make that character a more and for some weird reason it works yeah and I, I, I don't i don't quite know how, how or why i think this yeah. is one of the reasons i, I choose this story to, to introduce uh that some of these uh, creators as british comics creators because one of the things that's really interesting about it because at the same time at the start of that module and try to teach some of the students who've maybe not studied comics before about how comics work. And I think that, that this is a brilliant example uh, of you know dramatic pacing and it's a dramatic story, but it's undercut by the, the kind of the, the underlying joke so that the tension between word and image all the way through it, often what the images are showing us and the quite serious voiceover style narration coming from the, the soldier, the protagonist, are completely at odds with one another. So there's a really, really funny disjunction between word and image. I think what's also really interesting is as an introduction to the kind of themes that we see over and over and again in Grant Morrison's comics. It's, it's really a wonderful example of that because if you look at The Invisibles, which is you know, one of Morrison's most important and, and well-known stories, there's the, the, the essence of that story is the the conflict between reality and perception and if if there is anything that is real beyond our perception and so that there's, there's things there about artifice and how basically the world that we understand it is constructed through language uh, and also uh, how it's constructed through images and artifice you know that's the role of barbalists in, in the invisibles is, is, is very much uh, about iconography, symbols these are the, these are the kind of the building blocks of what we call reality, uh, and the more the more we we probe that, the more that becomes becomes questionable. That that's that's a kind of key theme all the way through through Morrison's work. You know, Invisibles is a long, extended text, and if here we have in about six pages or or so the exact same themes about this tension between reality and uh, and language and perception and art. Uh, it's, well, it's wonderfully done, and done really tongue-in-cheek and really, really funny. It's, it's kind of interesting that you say the life of it, because it reminds me a bit of a future show, yeah. you know, from 2000 AD. It's got that vibe of it, but, but but it goes a bit beyond that as well. It's not as predictable as a as a future show, maybe, you know, but it has that vibe about it. And I wonder if that's that kind of era of that kind of transition between all of creators who worked in the UK going to... Uh, the American uh, market, maybe the second generation of, you know, the British invasion, maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's very reminiscent of uh, a future shock, a kind of twist in the tale type stories, the kind of ones that were being produced 
but you know, two thousand AD and, and so on in the in the the, the early to, to mid uh, the mid eighties. This is this is a little bit later, you know. This is this is uh, ninety seven, but it still has that 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 sense that 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 character of being a kind of short twist in the tail type story. And I I I always go back to this one as being one of the most uh, effective examples of this because this this there's not just one twist in this. There's several twists in this. Just the twist of it's a war story, but it's an action man figure, and and the 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 war that is being presented here is is as in that reference to Toy Story, a kind of artificial one, one in which characters play their parts uh, and everyone plays their parts somewhat unthinkingly. That's a kind of key point for for Morrison. Uh, that idea that we all play certain roles. You know, that's essentially the idea of the, the, the Invisibles. I think that that comes across really really wonderfully here, but the, the way that the Invisibles kind of treats that with, you know, real kind of weight and then really de delves into the philosophical concerns, this takes exactly the same ideas, but 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 plays with them, and, and the effect is 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 just uh, really funny. It's, it's it's really ironic, and you, you talk about, you talked a little bit about the style uh, and uh, the gestures, because the characters' faces don't don't really move or emote, and also that the poses that they're put into are very much the poses of toys. Mm. That's a kind of key idea that you, uh, you often think about in comics. When we think about comics and other media, I think Morrison's all, all, all very much interested in that relationship between comics and uh, and film and comics. This one seems to be to to speak to the relationship between comics and theater, because in in theater you often you, you have the uh, capability for for close-ups in the same way that you do in film, what's really important in theatre is all about gesture and you know uh, the, the use of the body or the use of the, the voice and so on to uh, to to present you know uh, uh, tell a tell a story. There's something very poised in this. The, the toys can only articulate in certain ways. They can't really express uh, uh, facially, and it says something about the way that we all in life perform within certain constraints. That's the kind of philosophical side of it. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting because in animation, if it, if it were just a, an animation, obviously going back to Toy Story, uh, groundbreaking, you know, 3D animation, um, it's all about the staging. The staging, as they call it in, in animation, or we call it in animation, is like how the scene is staged, like you would set up a stage show, yeah, and how it's composed, and the compositions of, of this. It's not stiff. That's a weird thing. It's not a stiff compositional layout, but it, it emotes even though the characters are grounded uh, in reality. And that's the same with Toy Story in a way that, that the characters are still, they kind of move in the way that, it's the same with the Lego movie as well, by the way, does it brilliantly, where the Lego movie, they move like Lego figures move. They don't move in, in exaggerated poses. Or, and, and so and this strip gives me that same vibe where you know, even though he's, he's gesturing, basically, um, it's within the confines of having an action man in the mood, yeah. which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the kind of key idea behind it. We're we're all puppets, you know, in a sense that uh, we we have uh, certain attitudes towards uh, whether it's kind of good and evil or politics. We, we all operate within certain constraints who are who are the puppet masters uh here and for for the toys here it's it's very much uh they're soldiers they're action men figures so they, they think in terms of warfare and conflict and, and so on and what they're blind to is the fact that there's an alien invasion of 
things which are also disguised as toys, which are taking over. Um, the key idea is that perhaps we are too bound up in you know our our, our sense of uh, you know morality or right and wrong, or or, or or to not really see reality as it is. We're bound by ideology, our own personal ideology or, or politics, so we only see a small portion of reality and uh, we're, we're puppets in the same way perhaps that, that the toys are that's the kind of key Morrisonian idea but it, it's 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 typical Grant Grant Morrison really uh, uh, particularly of the kind of comics that, that Morrison was doing at this time to to take something like this which is rich with philosophical possibility and you know kind of radical political ideas and present it as a mashup of Toy Story and the Eleven <laughs> with, with, with all these kind of all, all these toys that we're familiar with from our youth, but underlying that is something really, really kind of quite, quite important. And uh, as as you see as well, the, the contribution that that Frank Quitely makes to this in terms of the art is is quite phenomenal. You know, Frank Quitely is a is a is a frequent collaborator with 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 Grant Morrison, and I think you see in this this uh, short story uh, two people who are very accustomed to working to one another who, who can really understand what what each are each are looking for uh, and it's just it's just a wonderful very short but perfectly formed example of the kind of things that they they do together and, and why they're such an effective team yeah i'd have to i'd have to agree and i think that's probably a good point to to, to wrap up on it because it is a, it is a beautiful uh, conceived piece of work beautifully realized uh, i'd recommend anyone who hasn't seen it to track it down maybe not that easy to track down uh, i do know it was in a art of frank quietly book that dc brought out a couple of years ago yeah and obviously there's the original vertigo comic from 97 yeah. i think it is weird war tales but it's something that deserves greater exposure i think i think it definitely needs to be seen more than it is yeah yeah i mean if, if you love the invisibles and flex mentalo and, and that kind of thing you, you, you'll see all those kind of ideas condensed down in this this extreme form, and uh, uh, more than anything, I've talked a lot about you know the, the kind of politics and the philosophy of it. It's just really really funny. You know, it's it's a hilarious story and uh, exceptionally well done. We'll put some links into the show text after we can play this, so you can hopefully track this down. And I do recommend that you do so. So, thanks so much, Chris. Cheers. Thank you. Dave Gibbons and Tim Pilcher. Okay, well, thanks very much, uh, Dave and Tim, for joining me today. And uh, specifically, we're going to talk about your new book, uh, Confabulation, uh, an anecdotal autobiography. So uh, I wonder if you could tell us, uh, first of all, how this came about and uh, how you collaborated on this book. Well, I, I couldn't pinpoint the exact moment that it came into being, but... I've always enjoyed um, autobiographies by people whose work or, or whose world I'm, I'm interested in. And I thought, actually, I've had quite, if you're a comics fan, I've had quite an interesting career in, in comics because I've worked on a great number of things from 2008 to obviously DC Comics, Watchmen, Martha Washington, Games. I've, I've got to know most of the major players in comics in the past 20 or 30 years. And I thought, I'm sure there's an interesting autobiography in that. So it, on the, it's also quite a vain thing to do. It's, oh, I've had such an interesting life, you know, <laughs> that I can't wait to share it with people. And it's also most blokes when they 
get to my age, you've got so much wisdom to impart, you know, and they feel that the world deserves an autobiography. I wasn't really doing it for that reason. I just wanted to do something that was entertaining, that people could dip in and out of uh, and read at, read at leisure, which is why taking a, um, a leaf out of a previous Dark Horse comics book, which was a, a general history of comics called, I think it's called uh, Comics A to Z or something, was it, Tim? Perhaps, perhaps uh, you can... Yeah, I keep forgetting what it's called. No, it's, it's, no and it's called Comics Between the Panels. The panels. And, yeah. and it is not a chronological history of comics. It is an anecdotal history of all of comics. And the thing that I really liked about it was that unlike a conventional autobiography where you have to sort of start at the beginning and then slog through all the boring personal stuff about growing up and families and going to school and getting your break and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that you could, you could dip in and out of it and just read a paragraph or two, depending on how much time you had. And the different entries could be different lengths. If you had a lot to say about something, you could take a few pages. If you didn't have much to say, or you, you wanted to be a bit snitty about it, you could write a very short entry. In that particular history of the comics, Bob Kane, who created Batman, gets about two paragraphs, you know, whereas an obscure feud between two Incas in the 1950s gets three and a half pages, you know. So I rather like the way that that weighted everything. And it was quite an easy thing to do because I just wrote a list of like headings that I felt I had an essay in me um, about. And then what I would do over the, I don't know, maybe nine months it took me to, to do it. I'd just look at my list of things that I hadn't yet written and think, oh, I fancy writing that today. And I'd start writing and I'd type until I'd written an essay. And I just worked through the whole thing like this, not in any particular order. And then... And obviously there came a point where I had to look at the whole thing and kind of knock it into shape and make it a bit balanced and avoid repetition. Because if you're telling it from various viewpoints, you tend to go over the same ground. Um, and then I forget exactly the point at which I got in touch with Tim, but I'll let Tim tell that side of the story. But Tim and I had worked previously on How Comics Work, which was my how-to book. Um, and, you know, we I think we worked very well together on that. And... Also, it's a great thing on any creative endeavour to have a partner so you don't feel that you're the only mad person in, in the world. And Tim's, Tim's feedback has been invaluable in, in much the same way as it was with the how-to book about comics. He's got a good idea of what the public would find interesting, not just what I'd find interesting. So that's been a very valuable part of the process. And, it's, and it has indeed been good fun. And I think it's an entertaining read. That's... that that. That was my goal, and hopefully we've achieved that. Yeah, I mean, Tim, you've got you know, previous yourself because you, you've you've gone through the process of writing a, a history of, of, of your uh, uh, career. Um, how how different was it though uh, collaborating with Dave? Because I like Dave's; it's very non-linear. Um, mm. This book, and also there's a there's a lot of visuals in it as well, which I really liked. So, so again, uh, how, how did that kind of uh, connectivity work between the two of you uh, as far as did Dave send you uh, piece by piece or did you take the whole manuscript at the end? Just interested in that interaction. Yeah, but as Dave said, as we finished doing how comics work, we, we were both really processed people, but it was also part of that book was also kind of Kind of a, a little bit of a mini retrospective of Dave's career because we were using examples of everything he'd done as ways of how to create comics and so this was kind of a logical 
follow on from that really uh, and just kind of made sense but Dave actually supplied like a full manuscript so the the entire book laid out with each um section done and what I actually really like about the book is that although it is dipping and out and you can do that you can read it linear and both ways you still get this sense of Dave's career almost in a linear fashion Although, you know, and it, it, it's very interesting. It just kind of works almost like we were talking about it when we were developing it. Was, it was a bit like um, uh, the, the internet on page. And at one point we were talking about possibly linking from, you know, article to article and you could follow it around mm. in that way as well. But I think it, that just logistically got a bit too complicated. Yeah. Um, but, but it means that you can come at it at, at, at almost any different angle and you're still going to get this kind of, you know, complete career retrospective of, of Dave's work and life um and and I think that's a testament to how Dave wrote and approached the book that it that it holds together like that and and of course you know the difference between my little pamphlet which was just about the vertigo days and Dave, Dave's got a 40 odd year career that covers everything so and, and of course it had to be visual because Dave is you know when I was going to say this is primarily known as an artist but actually looking through the book you realize how much stuff he's written over the years i'm talking like you're not in the room here <laughs> carry on i love it i love it too <laughs> help yourself <laughs> but, but you know it, it, it's funny over the years i've heard some of these anecdotes before and you know they're things that dave has told in you know convention bars uh and things like that but there's also a lot of information i hadn't heard before so it was really interesting for me as as kind of like as, as a fan as well realizing actually how wide Dave's career kind of covers because a lot of people think it's like 2080 DC and and kind of you know Dark Horse and that's it but actually it's, it goes way back into the the beginnings of fandom in in uh in the 70s it goes into the underground comic scene of the, of the 1970s and into advertising and stuff that I remembered reading as a kid uh this is where I make him feel old it's <laughs> stuff that I was reading as a kid, which I had no idea was Dave, which were things like um, the Junior Jet Club magazine. I was a member of the British Airways Junior Jet Club and Dave did a, a comic strip in there called, uh, what was it? Jet, Logan. Jet Jason. Jet Jason. That's yeah. Yeah. And and so it was kind of weird that all this stuff from my childhood was kind of coming up at the same time. And so there's lots of curios and oddities that, you know, even probably the, the biggest sort of Dave Gibbons comic fan is probably not seen or you know so it's nice little nuggets like that hidden amongst the 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 more obvious yeah stuff. and one thing that we tried to do and Tim was very much responsible for prompting me to do this would be to choose bits of artwork that probably people hadn't seen before you know because I wrote a book called Watching the Watchman and that had loads of unseen sketches and unfinished pages from Watchmen. So that was kind of everything that I had on that. And then how comics work used a lot of process stuff and a lot of sketches and everything. So we tried very much for the illustrations for this. Although there are Watchmen illustrations and Superman illustrations and Dan Dare and Road Trooper, they're ones that haven't been so commonly seen that were done for a convention booklet or there'll be advertising art, which was only published in a specialist magazine or only appeared briefly on the back of a London bus. So hopefully for people who are fans of mine, they'll find there's lots of stuff in that they haven't seen before. 
Um, and, you know, that's, again, in all these things, I'm always driven by what sort of book would I like to read? So I've tried to do, I'm sure it's saying for Tim, the kind of book that I would want on my shelf anyway, even if I wasn't actually responsible for writing it. Yeah, I think the word lavishly illustrated comes comes to mind, you know, when you, mm-hmm. when you see a book like this. And again, I, I agree with, with, with Tim, you know, the, the sheer variety of, of the work actually uh, kind of shocked me a little bit. I don't know why it did, but but it did because it, it wasn't just focusing on areas that you've covered elsewhere. And it was it, it was kind of a, the whole breadth of, of what you've done so far. Um, mm-hmm. So going back to, to, the, to the start a little bit, uh, I, I was quite intrigued as well to see, you know, you're talking a little bit about the, the DC connections. And obviously we've got the, the DC Thompson connection here in Dundee, um, but also the DC Comics uh, connection. And you, you, you talk a, a little bit uh, about that uh, in the book mm. uh, and that about coincidence as well and kind of, you know, things that happen uh, or serendipity and, 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 yeah. and opportunities yeah. that have arisen. I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit more on that. Well, it's a bit strange. I mean, you don't sort of see the patterns in things while you're, living them, but it it is most unusual. I I mean, my initials are DC Gibbons and it's DC Comics and DC Thompson. And that's kind of weird. If you wrote that as a piece of fiction, you think, no, you're going to have to come up with some new names for for part of this. Or the fact that my first wife was Kathy Kane, you know, which is, which is Batwoman. My son is Daniel, uh, not named after Dan Dare, in fact, named after the Elton John song, just in case you're interested. Um, and also, I was born on the 14th of April, 1949, exactly a year to the day before the Eagle. You know, so, I mean, perhaps these weird sort of resonances are only clear to me, but it, it does make you think sometimes, maybe there is a plan here. Maybe I'm actually, somebody's written my script, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's and, and of course, there is just the sheer serendipity of how I got into the field anyway. I mean, I won't preempt too much of it when it's all probably told much better and in much more coherent English in the book. But the fact that when I started work in London as a building surveyor, I happened to be literally round the corner from Fleetway Comics and had made friends through fandom and used to go and hang out there in, in, in the lunch times. That gave me a step that I wouldn't have had if, say, I'd been based in Wolverhampton or... Brighton or something like that so you know um when you look back on your life you're just amazed that god if I hadn't turned that corner or I hadn't bought that particular comic or caught that bus then things would have happened completely differently and um I think that's very apparent when you come to read the book the 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 other thing I was going to say that I tried to do with, with the book was to write it very much in my voice as if it I was chatting to you in a pub and you both know me well enough to know that I will just talk and talk and talk <laughs> and then it will remind me of another thing and I'll talk. And... So it's a bit like being pinned against the bar by me for about eight hours re- re- reading this book, but it, it is in my, my consistent voice. And uh, as I say, there, are, you know, it's, it's entertaining. There's drama, there's coincidence, there's laughter, you know, there's a few tears, you know, but it's generally an uplifting experience. I like to think. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of reflect again, Tim, your book was kind of, uh, you know, a kiss and tell, I suppose you could describe it, you know, from your days at, at Vertigo, and it was very uh, illuminating. But but this book as well, I'd say, isn't without its moments of, you know, 
Um, not, I wouldn't say controversy, but you, I, I feel we've got to the point where you're happy to talk about a lot of things that you haven't really spoken about before. Is that fair to say, without naming any names? Well, I mean, it is because there's no point in writing an autobiography if you're going to be anything less than honest. You know, so I think whatever you tell has got to be the truth as you understand it. I mean, none of us is omniscient and knows what the absolute truth is. But there have been certain things in my career and certain things I've been privy to where what's got out to the public view doesn't quite match with my memory of it. And I've got no great desire to reignite old feuds or to set matters straight because, you know, there was some terrible injustice there. But I just think it's it's interesting to put the other side of things to say, well, this is what it looked like from my point of view. Uh, and so I've done that. And I really, I really have tried to be as honest as I can be whilst bearing in mind that even if you're completely honest, it's still not necessarily the truth that you... Um, arrive at and of course there is also the thing you know Tim and I mentioned earlier about telling people anecdotes in bars and things obviously if you've got a good anecdote as we all know you tell it again and again and you polish it and you knock the corners off it and you leave out the things that aren't dramatic and you perhaps exaggerate the things that make it more, more dramatic which is why I called the whole book confabulation anyway and it has been interesting as I've written the book to see that there are things that I believe to be true, say, in a chronological sense, that actually weren't true. Things actually didn't happen in that in that order. So I've, I've actually corrected myself, apart from trying to correct the whole world, I've kind of corrected myself as well. But that's kind of interesting. I was wanting to ask that question, and, and because you both tackled this, uh, you know, from your own point of view, um, I just wonder, how do you trigger these kind of memories? You know, Tim, you did it in your book, and it's very much a, a snapshot of, of that time of, of your life. Uh, Dave, you, yours is maybe a, a bit wider, so you're maybe going back a, a, a little bit further or, or, or looking at a, a lot more incident, if you want. And I just wonder, how do you kind of jog your own memory? Is it visual? Are you a kind of visual kind of thinker in that respect? Or have you kept notes as you've went along? Um, what's the kind of process? I kind of find it fascinating because I thought to myself, if I was to try and reflect on, on my life, a lot of it is very hazy. You know, it's very much, you know, <laughs> I think back to the 70s and it's almost like it's all, it was always sunny and you know, everything was, it was great just because of the time of, of my life, you know, at that point. Mm. I, I just wonder what triggers the memories and how you actually force yourself to sit down and get that on paper. My, my process was um, quite the days, actually. It was kind of writing down the the kind of key incidents things that i remember that were the strongest memories and kind of starting to build around those events so whether it was kind of particular parties or events or or sort of books we were working on or something things like that things that i knew were pretty solid and then kind of doing the research again of just looking at dates and checking and I spoke to a lot of people as well and just kind of said did this happen this is how I remember it I'm not sure do you do you know and actually that was really interesting is that lots of people said oh no that was like this and I was going really you know so that forced memory syndrome can really kind of sneak in there but yeah. but definitely um you know it's it, it was for me it was the building up the narrative from the the sort of grounding points and then finding those linking connections to to build up a, a an overall narrative rather than trying to say i'm going to just get the whole narrative straight down it was it was trying to see where those interesting points intersected 
yeah. to build up the story. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was much the same thing. I mean, there are certain anecdotes that I told that I know are surefire winners. It's a bit like with a stand-up comedian. That's the one you open with and that's the one you finish with. And, and actually just trying to write them down, you remind yourself of other things as, as you write them or you think, oh, yeah, that's right. Then he did that. But I hadn't got that in the anecdote. So I must remember to write that. And I actually got to a point, and I don't, I don't know if Tim did, with far from it being difficult to write, I couldn't get it down quickly enough because the memories, so you, you, you tap into them and you want to make sure you don't miss anything or you don't sell them short, you know. Um, so it, it, I think the, and I mean, the, the original inspiration, I mean, I'm in a room full of comics and books and a, a lot of them are my comics and books. And I've got a special shelf, which has got my, my things on it. So I only have to look at that and be reminded or flip through it and think, oh, that's interesting. Yes. I inked Brian Bolland then, didn't I? Or, yeah. I must do a good entry on Brian and I must remember to write this and write that. The other thing I would say, and this is a completely unsolicited plug, I used a piece of software called Scrivener, and it was absolutely invaluable because unlike with Word or a standard Word processor, where you have to open it a document at a time and have loads of windows, it works more like sort of an email client or something where you have a, you have a list of headings and then you can click on them and look at the full entry and it's got a space where you can write notes or, or drag images. And I found that it was really, really useful to do this, exactly this kind of book. Um, and it enables you to see exactly where you are and you can output it in any format you like, in a word format, rich text. So if anybody out there is considering doing something like an autobiography or a thesis, I would really recommend ch checking out Scrivener. Unpaid plug, but I just had to say it. <laughs> kind of perfect for the format, though, like you say, because you, you have broken it down to the... To the A to Z. I mean, did, did you did you have a kind of uh, um, restriction on on space as well? I mean, I I know you, you spoke to me years ago about right starting this autobiography pre pandemic, um, and did did that change um, when the publisher came on board, or did you always have quite a clear idea of how it was going to the final format, what that final format was going to be? No, I had a very clear, I knew exactly how I wanted it to be. And as I say, I, I had a slight model in that previous Dark Horse book, the kind of blend of images and pictures and the sort of length of entries. But the real, real beauty, as I say, was that you only had to write to the length that fitted the story. So if something was a one paragraph throwaway, that you didn't feel any need to make it into anything longer. On the other hand, if you had a lot to say about something, and there are certain things that I do have quite a lot to say about, they could just take the space they wanted. And then and then at the end of it, when we looked at the length of it, it's about, is it 200 and something pages, Tim, 220 pages? Or something. About that at the moment, yeah. yeah and, and, there's, yeah. and each entry we try to make sure has got an illustration. And in some cases, if there isn't an illustration, there's an, there's an illustration for something else tipped in there. And there's going to be images in the end papers and the front and back matter. So, um, yeah, we, we, we kind of cut, cut the cloth and then trimmed it up and chopped it up and moved things around till it fitted. And I think having looked back over the PDFs that, that we sent you, I think it has achieved what I wanted it to be, a book you can dip in and dip out of. And on every page, there's going to be a piece of my artwork that you probably haven't seen before or you saw so long ago that you've forgotten it. Yeah, I'm actually quite looking forward to going back into it again because I did 
read it in a linear fashion for, mm-hmm. for this interview. And it works on that level. I'm actually looking forward to just going in and just picking out the bits that, you know, I, I want to read up on again. And, and I do like the idea, again, of that playing with that, that format. And it's almost like, um, you know, remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books where you jump about different pages and, you know, but there's yeah. still an overall narrative there. I, I kind of like that kind of playing with, with even, even with that, you're kind of playing with the, the storytelling um, conventions, you know, much like you would do in the, in the day job if you want. So I always like when people mix that up. It was interesting as, as well, and I, I hadn't really imagined this until Tim alerted me to it, was that each illustration had to have a caption as well. And this is where all that time I've spent messing around on Twitter came in handy because you've only got so many characters or so many words you can write in the caption. And you want to write something that you haven't already covered in the text and you want to write something that's informative. So I actually enjoyed the mental kind of puzzle of after the event, going through it and writing 30 word captions for, for, for pieces of artwork. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been, it's not just, oh, I'll do, do, do whatever I want and it, it doesn't matter. That There has been a degree of discipline in it, but just the kind of creative discipline I love where you've got 30 characters or 30 words to tell a little mini story about a piece of art, you know? I think that the, the hardest thing about doing a book like this is, is encapsulating the entire life of, of working in comics in, in one book. And, and the mm-hmm. hardest thing was kind of like, what images do you put in? What images do you leave out? What, you know, text do you put in and what text do you leave out? And that that was one of the kind of the hardest sort of processes mm. was because, you know, there was so much good material. And I would imagine we could have done a book that was, you know, three volumes longer than this, you know. Going oh, yeah. Easily, and and of course now re- reviewing the whole thing, I realised, oh, I've, I should have mentioned him or, oh, I never mentioned that thing that I, I worked on. So, I mean, I'm not saying there will be a sequel, you know, <laughs> they, they, they Gibbons 2.0 or anything like that, but... Um, you know, there, there is, there is, there are still some untold stories, but most of the things that I wanted to be in there, and most of the things that give the flavour, because there's in doing anything, there's the facts of what happened, there's the evidence, the pictures, and everything of what happened, but there's also the kind of feel of it. And I know from reading Tim's book about that particular moment in U.S. British comics. It had a particular flavour that I think Tim captured very well. And I've tried to capture the sort of the feeling of what it was like to be one of the young Turks breaking into comics in the 70s and subsequently working in all the places I had. And I think on rereading it that I it feels right to me, you know, even if maybe there are factual errors, I don't think too many, but it, it's got the right feel. So that's something that I'm I'm very pleased about comes back to the, the right time, the right place, not just for your career, but also about when you're releasing this as well. You know, I mean, I, and I, I know I've been anticipating this for uh, for a good few years now. I think you mentioned it maybe years ago when you were up in Dundee that you were starting to think about this and, and that you, you were going to yeah. try and make it more conversational. I've had this discussion as well where the mm. the, the, the way that the story, stories are t- told. And that brings me to, to one uh, one uh, entry, which I, which I really love the way you wrote the, the, the entry, uh, which you're talking about Watchmen and, and Alan. And, and the way you write that is very much the, uh, the format that was used in a specific chapter of Watchmen. And I wonder if you could no, really? Uh, How could that happen? You'd almost think I did that deliberately, wouldn't you, really? <laughs> yeah, you, you mean the one where I discussed the passage of time in a sort yes. of Dr. Manhattan? Yeah. 
it just seemed appropriate and it seemed a way of stepping back from what was quite an intense thing and taking a kind of an overview and again putting things in chronological order and it has got the feeling there's I don't know it's weird just like the the Dr Manhattan issue of Watchmen issue four things assume I don't know almost kind of an inevitability that was the feeling I got from read, reading it again that that's what happened and there's no way it could have happened any differently. Um, but I did enjoy writing that one as well. As I say, issue four of Watchmen was my favourite issue of that. And, you, you know, I'm kind of not parodying, but I'm kind of doing it in the style that Alan wrote that, although probably not as successfully. But anyway, <laughs> that, no, that, I thought, I thought that, that definitely came across. It was just the structure of it. The way, it straight away, there was, there was no ambiguity about what you were referencing, for me anyway, yeah. so I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, other readers I, I, I actually did that more or less in one sitting. I just sat that down and started writing it, and I more or less just went straight straight through to the end and revised it only a very little bit afterwards. So that was one of those things. And when that happens, you think, yeah, that, well, again, that was meant to be, that was inevitable. I'm, I'm sure you, I'm sure you found the same with your book, Tim, you know, there's some bits that it, they just, they, Hello. Yeah. they just write themselves really, you know? Yeah. I, I want to ask Dave a little bit about the um, early work that, that's in the book. A lot of the, the, the drawings I've never seen before. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you uh, source those and, and, and what the inspiration was for putting them in the book? Yeah, well, you know, because it's a, a story of me in comics, really, I wanted to show it from the very beginning of my relationship with comics and and how I, you know, literally first got in, in, into drawing them. And um, as people may be aware, and as Tim is aware, because he's actually been around here to see, see the archive, I've kept probably every drawing I've ever done. Um, and I actually found two very, very early drawings of Superman that I must have done when I was eight years old. And they're dated December the 26th. So they're the day after Christmas. And I obviously must have got a Superman annual as a Christmas present. And I started copying pictures out of it the very day after. So there's a couple of pictures of, that I've clear, clearly copied, quite carefully drawn in pencil, crayons scribbled in, nice Superman logo. And of course, I give the secret away immediately because it's Superman, alias Clark Kent, uh, and then it's and then it's the date and the, and, and a very ornate signature. So that's the very earliest superhero drawing that I've been able to discover anyway. And then when I got a bit older, I used to sort of draw my own complete comics. I used to do my version of Mad Comics, and I've got all those pages I drew as well. So sprinkled throughout the book, there's there's obviously some very uh, uh, hi highly finished, very professional drawings in, in there that I've done, but they're offset by this sprinkling of pretty shabby, experimental, clumsy learning drawings. And I always find that sort of thing inspiring, you know, when I realise that if somebody's ended up being a wonderful draftsman, they haven't always been a wonderful draftsman, and that they've drawn those 10,000 crappy drawings <laughs> before they got to the ones that were any good. So I've, I've included those in there. And the thing that's amazing to me is that I can still see things I did wrong, you know, when I was 12, that I'm still doing when I'm the venerable age I am now. So my thumbprint is inevitably on them. But yeah, I think they add a nice bit of seasoning to the, uh, to the mix. I think what, what's nice is 
is that in the book you, you do, as, as Dave says, you, you get to see the evolution of, of Dave's art style. And I think, you know, a lot of people have a, an idea of, you know, they, they kind of know Dave's art and, and know what it looks like. But actually, when you look at the whole book, you can see there are lots of different sort of styles of, of Dave's work and sort of like, you know, the stuff he was doing in the 70s and the underground stuff is, is really different to what he was then doing in 2000 AD, which is really different to what he was doing on, say, Secret Service and the Kingsman stuff. And, and there's this constant evolution uh, and adaptation of art styles. So although kind of, they, you know, people think, oh, yeah, I know what Dave's artwork looks like. It's actually when you look at it in, in the broader sense, you can really see this this evolutionary passage uh, throughout, throughout the entire career. And there's a lot more sort of cartoony stuff, I think, with, with you know, that influence of Jack Davis and that, that, that sort of is in is in the book there as well, which I don't think gets talked about very much because you know you mm. you, you had that love of those, those kind of like um those you know the kids cartoon kind of comics didn't you as well? Yeah, yeah. No, I I mean I th I think I surprised myself actually because you know the joke is my name is Dave Watchman Gibbon, so you know I, that's what I'm always and I've sort of almost bought into the fact that Watchman really that's that kind of sums it all up. And obviously it's been a major thing. I mean. It was only a couple of years of my career that I spent, I say only, it was a couple of years of my career that I spent doing it. But obviously it's fame and it's long, longevity has gone far beyond that. And I did look at it and think, yeah, it's sort of kind of as overshadowed slightly other things that, that, that I did. Something like Martha Washington, for, for instance, which is actually about twice the length of Watchmen, tends to get, you know, Dave Watchmen gave his, oh, and Martha Washington, you know. But in, in fact, in terms of pages, or time spent, that's a slightly um, unbalanced view of it. But but it, it, it is interesting how I try and keep a straight face with a lot of things I draw, but somehow I can't resist a joke and I do like things that have got humour in them. And that style of drawing comes quite easily to me. I suppose I think it's difficult is to make it look really serious and dramatic. That's, that's where you have to work at it. Speaking of uh, Martha Washington, you do hint at something that might be brewing there am I, am I reading between the lines there wrong or is there something happening in the background we're not quite aware of yet well yeah I mean I don't like to jinx things by talking about them too much before they actually happen but obviously Martha Washington is a considerable piece of work and anybody who's read it will know that it's been kind of eerily we were talking about coincidence and everything earlier it's very prescient of what has gone on to happen maybe 25 years after we did it. So it would seem to me that it fits perfectly with the sort of zeitgeist of, of, of today. And it's a piece of work that I'm very proud of. And I think, you know, Frank and I have been responsible for lots of characters and drawn lots of different things. But I think you could quite accurately say that we're both a little bit in love with, with Martha. She turned out to be pro probably one of our favorite characters. And so I would absolutely love to see her fame spread beyond some old comics. Um, but I haven't got anything concrete that I can say to you at this moment, but I do appreciate the question. And uh, Tim, do you, do you want to tell us about um, when the book is going to be out and uh, the kind of formats you can get it in and, and where you'll be doing uh, any launches and any cons you'll be going to as well to promote the book in the, in the upcoming months? 
Yeah, it's um, confabulation and uh, anecdotal autobiography is um, going to be coming out from Dark Horse Comics. So it'll be available in all good comic shop and bookshops. I mean, obviously the pandemic ha hasn't helped, but it has t t taken a long while to finally get get this done. But I'm really happy with where it's ended up because I've got a, a long relationship with, with Dark Horse and, um, you know, I, th they're adding a lot to what Tim and I have done. And the book looks great. It's, I mean, we're not showing any of the book today, but I can't wait until we actually get, get, get out there and we can show people some pages on screen and, um, you know, you'll be able to get a better, better feel of it. But I'm really really ha happy with it and it'll be really good particularly after the pandemic as well to get back out on the road and go to a few conventions and meet some fans and you know get back into the swing of things with something that we're really proud to to show off mm. no exactly no i'm looking forward to, to catching up with you both at a con somewhere around the world or the uk or, or wherever um, so yeah, um, we'll, we'll put the details into into the link of uh, where to get the book and, and to get more information on that uh, at a later date. So um, thanks, guys. Uh, just before we wind up, there's a couple other things we want to talk about. So just what what you're working on next, if anything, uh, anything you could tell us about. Uh, well, I'm I'm still very much focused on this autobiography, and I'm you know I am a as you realise when you read the book and look at the dates, I'm a gentlemen of mature years and I'm I'm actually kind of semi-retired I still do the odd commission and the odd uh thing like that but I don't tend to take on very much work these days to be honest and also part, partly inspired by having written the autobiography I it's likely that probably the next thing I do will be something that I'll I'll write because having done so much drawing you know um writing feels that much more kind of fresh to me but um yeah we'll have to see what see what, what happens and of course you know things that i've done are hopefully going to move into other media and um i very much enjoy consulting on things and passing on some of my wisdom or my experiences so uh, that's the kind of work that i i do at the moment well like dave said i think we're all hands to the pump on on confabulation at the moment to make sure that that gets uh, ready in time for release um and i'm working on a thing called the res which is a children's mental health and well-being uh comic and podcast um we've been up for quite a few podcast awards like the webbies and uh various others and um that's with uh, on the, the creative side um with the um, Hannah Berry, who was uh, a um, comics laureate, just like Dave was, yeah. um, and uh, Rachel Smith, who's done a lot of mental health and well-being sort of comics as well. So I've been working with them on that. We've done one comic so far and one series of the uh, the podcast, and we're just doing the the second series now and and second comic. So that, that's coming along. That's that's really nice. And then um, I did a, a little book. I don't know if you saw the, the Frank Quartley drawings and sketches book that BHP did. Yeah. I did one with Charlie Adlard on that. And we just I've just kind of managed to convince another um, great British comic artist to do uh, the mm -hmm. next one. So I'm going to be kind of working out. It's not Dave, not Dave on that. <laughs> we did that with how, how comics work. I feel yeah, like we, true, we, true. we'd mind that one, really. <laughs> those those books you mentioned, Tim, they're really beautiful, concentrated little packages of goodness. So just keep yeah. them coming. 
no, yeah. no it's, a, it's a nice series we want to keep doing that so yeah, yeah. i had the pleasure of seeing uh vinnie's actual sketchbooks that they were some of them based on you know when he did a, a class which almost 10 years ago now actually um and the amount of work that was packed into those sketchbooks was was incredible you know it was a huge body of work in its own right so I'm very intrigued by whatever artist it is you've got lined up next and I'll maybe uh, ask you off off air who it is but uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it'll become apparent in the, in the few in the upcoming months uh, great stuff okay well thanks very much for your time guys that was uh, great to hear about the book and, and and what you're up to and what you're up to next and hopefully we'll see you at one of the shows uh, coming up in the next few months yeah brilliant Great Thank stuff. You. Thanks very much, Phil. Thanks, guys. Thank Back you. to work, too. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>